You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. Good. Now, you know, this is the Sunday before Christmas, and uh, we've got a lot going on this week here at the church, the 23rd, the 24th. Both of those are Christmas Eve services. They're going to be exactly alike. We're going to sing carols. We're going to gather around the Lord's table. We're going to light candles. It'll be a special time. You should be here, but you should not come alone. You need to bring somebody with you. Bring someone with you, either the 23rd or the 24th, and of course, we will be here next Sunday morning. Now, I've mentioned something. You bring the kids, just let them come like they are. You know, if they've got their, you know, I'm talking about up to about seven or eight or so. So I I don't want 25-year-olds walking around in their pajamas here. This isn't the Atlanta airport. Um, So just, you know, and listen, parents, let them bring one small toy that does not make a noise because I'm going to do something with them. I'm going to gather them together and I'm going to do something with them um, next Sunday morning. So now take your copy of God's word. Let's go to Matthew chapter two. Somebody wrote me this morning and said, after what you did last week, what in the world are you going to preach this morning? Um, Well, I'm going to get out Uh, of the Old Testament, going to go to the New Testament, to Matthew chapter 2. In 1994, I'm sure you remember, there was that massive earthquake out in the San Fernando Valley uh, there in Los Angeles, and it just decimated that area out there, $20 billion worth of damage. That's $40 billion in our day and time. And uh, everything went down. All the power went completely out in that whole valley, in that whole region. It was down. Television was off. Radio was off. Um, There was absolutely nothing. It was in total darkness. They had just had that unbelievable. They said that the ground shook for 20 seconds. Now, you think, well, that's not long. Well, it is if you're standing there shaking for 20 seconds. When is this going to stop? When is this going to end? Everything's falling apart. Well, somehow people were able to call uh, into the observatory. I don't know how the phone lines or what was still working, but they called in. In fact, they flooded the observatory, the police stations, the rescue state, you know, fire departments, because there was this, what they considered to be some kind of UFO that was hanging over the city of Los Angeles, this, this hazy, silvery light that was just there over the city. And people were terrified that that's what caused the earthquake and that it just is there, it's not going off anywhere, and it's going to create another earthquake uh, on top of what they've just experienced. Well, nobody knew what they were talking, nobody had a clue what this was until the guy, the head of the observatory out there in Los Angeles figured out what was going on And they were able to get, you know, they started telling, replying to people saying, hey, tell folks, this is what it is. That is not some kind of spaceship, only in California. That's not some kind of spaceship up there. It's not some kind of extraterrestrial something or another. It's the Milky Way. You've just never seen it. People who had grown up in Los Angeles had never seen the stars before. Because of the brightness of the lights out there, nobody had ever really seen 
the Milky Way in a way you could when all of the power goes off. And it's interesting in life how something can be right there in front of you and you never see it. You never experience it. You never know that it was ever there. Now, that's exactly what Matthew is doing. Matthew chapter 2 in the first four verses with these guys that we call these three kings or the wise men as they come. The interesting thing is this, and I'm going to tell you up front what Matthew is doing with this, is he's looking at these wise men as they come near. They come from afar, they come near. These who were spiritually unstable, and I'm going to show you that in just a moment, these who were spiritually very far away could see it so clearly. But those who were there, who were supposed to be so close, who were supposed to be close geographically and close spiritually, were the ones who were actually very far away. So you've got pagans now who are far away, who are coming close, and you've got those who declare that they are the spiritual ones who are actually spiritually very far away. Do you see what's going to begin to happen here? Now watch this passage as we begin to look at these three wise men, these three kings, as we often sing. Well, let me tell you, there's so much tradition that's grown up around them that you almost have to step back before you do anything and start peeling some of this away. We don't know that there were three. Uh, we have no clue that there were three. We know that there was more than one because it's plural in the text, but we don't know if there was three or 43 or 53 or 63. We have no, no idea. In uh, Cologne, we were just in the cathedral in Cologne there is a reliquary. That's a reliquary. Now, let me tell you, that's made out of gold. And um, they put relics. Now, relics are things that you go to uh, to see, and uh, in seeing those relics, you get time off of your purgatory. The time that you have to spend at Costco is cut down. <laughs> that's purgatory, folks. I'm telling you. There it is right there. Now, look at this second shot in the Cologne Cathedral there. Here's an altar up front, and there is a second altar way in the back, and there's that reliquary. Now, in that reliquary, by the way, it took them over 800 years to build this church. Now, that's what you call a building program. It took them over 800 years to build this place, and it built up around this whole concept that they had in that reliquary three relics, and the three relics happen to be the skulls of the three wise men. Well, that's what they believe. That's what they say. And uh, it is there in Cologne, Germany, if you care to go see it. Uh, but the fact is, we have no clue as to how many uh, of these kings there were. And by the way, let me take that away. They were not kings. Uh, they were magi which gives us our word magic because these men dabbled in science, they dabbled in medicine, they dabbled in chemistry, but most of all, they were astrologers. They studied the sky, that's a science, and they were men who were followers of, uh, of the zodiac. In other words, they were not just astronomers, they would follow astrology as well. Now, there are people today, 
educated, you know, well-intentioned people who won't get up out of the bed until they read their astrological chart for the day. Now, I just got a question. Why in the world would you choose anything called a horoscope to run your life by? I, I don't want anything horror to guide my life. I want something for certain. That's sin. In fact, God's word, I'll just do this. Just listen to Deuteronomy chapter four as Moses speaks to the people and he says this, beware not to lift up your eyes to heaven. See the sun, the moon, and the stars and all the hosts of heaven and be drawn away and worship them and serve them. Now, that's a word for us today because a lot, listen, I grew up in the 60s. I remember the fifth dimension as they came out with probably what was their biggest hit. And that is, you know, the moon is in the seventh house and Jupiter aligns with Mars. This is the age of Aquarius and all that kind of mess. You know, there's a Greek word for that. That's it. Um, why, why, but they do. That's what these magi did. These magi believed that the movement in the heavens of the planets and these fixed stars all told something about the future of their lives. And you say, well, why in the world would Matthew, let me get back to Matthew chapter two. Why would Matthew include that? Well, why in chapter one of Matthew's gospel would Matthew come and talk about Tamar who was involved in incest as uh, being in the line of Christ? Why would he mention Rahab, who was a prostitute? Why would he mention Ruth, who turned out to be a, literally a Canaanite out of the Moabite side? And then Bathsheba, and we know all that happened there. Why did he put them in? Because God forgives, that's why. <laughs> uh, that's why, that's what happens. God forgives and God doesn't throw people away. And so just like that, you've got these men and they're coming to worship. I'm gonna show you where I think their heart is in just a few moments, but you've got these pagan, star-worshipping, moon-worshipping, sun-worshipping pagans who are coming and they are looking for the king of the Jews, the one whose star that they saw. Why? Because this is what they were searching for. These people who were far off came near because they were searching for the Christ. When those people who were up close and personal never saw it and were not interested when it was pointed out. But I want to tell you something. That's a lot of our church today. We're a lot of the people on the rolls of the church. You would think that on a Sunday before Christmas, the place, this place would be packed out. Service after service. You would think that on a Christmas day, nobody would question, do you go to church? My Lord, have mercy. What's the whole day about? But to come and to worship God who sent his son Christ to die for our sins. Where will the church be next week in the midst of all of this? What are you searching for? You see, the great problem with most of us in middle-class America is that we're always searching, especially this time of year, for some kind of feeling, some kind of emotion, the right pair of shoes to go with the right outfit, the right gift to buy, the right store to shop in, the right, right social group to go with. Which party am I going to go to? What's the right party? We're searching for all of this stuff. Because we want our lives to be like the songs we sing. There's a happy feeling nothing in the world can buy when they pass around the coffee and the pecan pie. Now, it's pecan pie for me. It'll nearly be like a picture print of Courier and Ives. 
These wonderful things are the things we remember all through our lives. And we, we search for this feeling and this emotion. Oh, we want that kind of Christmas. We want that kind of feeling. And it turns out like the Griswolds. And we wonder why we're so unhappy. What are you searching for? Well, that's the whole thrust of this. In fact, if you've got your Bibles open, I've wondered. In fact, up early this morning, I was wondering, looking again, what is the major verb here? And it seems to me to be in verse 2, come to worship him. But then I get down here in verse 8, and it says, go and search carefully for the child. This searching. What are we searching for? Is that the main concept? And so you come to this passage, and you look. Everybody here is searching for something and you come to these that are called wise men, and they're searching in anticipation while others are caught up in preoccupation. Now look at this. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is he who is born king of the Jews? They came following a star. The interesting thing is this, is as you study ancient history, especially history of Rome, uh, Julius Caesar, of course, was assassinated on the Ides of March. They build the, the burial pyre. They burn him. They, um, um, they um, what do you call that? Cremate him. <laughs> Couldn't think. Cremate. You'll be old one day. So, look. They cremate him. Once they do that, seven days later, there is a supernova that is recorded by Tacitus and Suetonius that uh, crosses the Roman sky. And uh, Caesar Augustus, who was Octavius, he was the adopted son of Julius Caesar, who will become the emperor of Rome, says that that star, that supernova that was moving, that comet that was moving, was Julius Caesar on his way to the pantheon of the gods, that he was becoming a god. Now, that's an interesting thought right there. Augustus did that not because he was interested in uh, lifting up the thought of, uh, uh, of Julius Caesar, but what would that make him if Julius Caesar was going to become a god? It'd make him the son of God. And so he pointed that out. The thing is this, Suetonius and Tacitus and Cicero, none of the other uh, Roman writers ever predicted anything like this. But you can go back 1,500 to 1,600 years. Put your finger there in Matthew chapter 2 and go back to Numbers chapter 24. Numbers chapter 24, you're going to find that there's a prophecy of this. There's a prophecy of this, and it comes from a prophet who is not friendly to the Jews. In fact, it's a prophet that had been hired to curse the Jews, and yet God so moved in the midst of that situation that every time Balaam went to open his mouth, instead of a curse coming out, out came a blessing. And so listen to the prophecy of Balaam here in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. I see him. He could see the Messiah coming. I see him, but not now. He's not here right now. This is not for right this moment. I behold him, that is literally, I can grasp what's happening here. I behold him, but he's not near. This is going to be off in the future. He says, a star shall come forth from Jacob and a scepter shall rise from Israel. And if you read the rest of this chapter, basically what is being said is that this king who will, 
whose coming will be signaled by a star, will overthrow the nations and will become essentially king of all the nations. Now that was the prophecy of Balaam. It prophesied 15 to 1600 years before Christ that the Messiah would come and the telling sign would be this astrological event, a star in the sky. Now, I'm not going to talk about that star. That's a different sermon for a different day. But now these magi saw it. The interesting thing is that nobody in Jerusalem did. They didn't see it. It didn't register. They, they were supposedly so close. They were the ones who were spiritually so close, and yet they did not see it. And these magi who lived now somewhere in the vicinity of Tehran, Iran, about 11, 1,200 miles away, they could see it very clearly. Now, that just fascinates me. How those who were far away could see it so clearly, and those who were right there, next to Bethlehem, eight miles at the most from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, maybe 10 at the very most, right there, they couldn't see any of this. They were from the east. Now, Jerusalem is east of here, but for them, uh, Jerusalem was west. This star appeared in the east. And the star appeared in the east and it appeared to move and they followed that and they moved some 1,100, 1,200 miles trying to find the answer to this prophecy. They were Parthians, by the way. Now, this is fascinating too. The, the only empire Rome could never overthrow was Parthia. The Parthians and the Romans constantly butted up to one another. They constantly were fighting, but Rome could never get advantage over Parthia. Parthia could never get an advantage over Rome. These were Parthians. Now, I know you're not thinking this way, so let me help you think about what would that be like today? It'd be like Iranian nuclear scientists crossing the border in Mexico, going to Austin to the governor's mansion and asking Governor Abbott how you could get to the White House in Washington, D.C. And he'd probably tell them. Why didn't Herod have them arrested? These were enemies of the Roman Empire. These are people that mix up chemical things and they dabble with all of this stuff. Why in the world did he not have them arrested? Because he wanted to use them for his own purpose. He's stunned in the midst of all of this. They're shocked that this has happened. They didn't know anything about it. He gathers together all of the chief priests and the scribes. If you look in verse 4, and here's the amazing thing. He inquired of them where the Messiah. They knew exactly who these wise men were talking about. This is the Messiah. This is the one that had been foretold all through the Torah, all through the writings, all through the prophets. This is the one we have anticipated and waited for all this time. So he brings all of the chief priests in and he says, where is this Messiah to be born? And they give him Micah chapter five, verse two, exactly. You Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That's where he's to be born. What do the chief, what do the chief priests, what do the leaders of the Southern Baptist Convention do with the information? Nothing. Not a thing. Not a thing. 
The scribes are the ones who copy the Old Testament. They copy the law. They are the ones who write it, and they not only write it, they argue it. They are lawyers, essentially, who will argue every little jot and tittle of the Old Testament. What do they do with the information when they get it? Nothing. Not one single thing. They miss the whole of the coming of the Messiah because there is nothing but a preoccupation of what they are doing. No anticipation that God is doing something in our midst. I, I want to say something to you, Valleydale. I, I want you to hear this from a pastor's heart now, and I want you to understand what I'm saying to you. There are things that are happening in this church that can only be explained by the move of God. And we sit here impervious to what's happening. You heard this pastor talk about how his mother had rejected him when he came to Christ. And now before your eyes, you watched a son baptize a mother who's now trusted in Jesus Christ. That's a miracle. That's a miracle. If you know the culture and the background of where she comes from, that's a miracle of God. In, in a little bit, you're going to hear Chuck get up and he's going to share out of what we've been doing in a ministry here that he's been leading over the last, uh, over the fall. And what he's going to share with you is going to be a miracle. A miracle. We're watching God do this in the midst of our congregation, and the fact of the matter is, do we even see it? Do we anticipate God's move here? Or are we too preoccupied with all the right stuff, the, the right shoes, the right outfit, the right party, the right gift, the right meal, the right menu, all of the things that we think are most important in life? Let me tell you, nothing is more important this week than your worshiping Jesus Christ. Now, let me give you the second thing. And the second thing is this. Now, look, are we looking with a heart of exaltation or tribulation? Look at how these guys come. Let me just give this to you in verse 10. This is kind of fascinating here. This is no usual star. Stars don't move. They're fixed points in the sky. You navigate by the stars. Not the planets now. Planets move, but stars are fixed points. There's no such thing as a falling star. Stars don't fall. Uh, that's a comet. That's a misnomer. Now, they collapse in on themselves. Uh, they may burn up, but they don't move. They are fixed points in the sky. But this thing is moving. It's called a star, but it moves. This is the first GPS system known to man right here. You know what that thing is like? Like that little blue dot on your telephone. Uh, I, last week or the other week or... Whenever we were in London, Debbie said, I, I, we, we need to go here. I'd get on this thing and I'd put in whatever, whatever it is she said. And I'd push, you see that? See that little blue, blue dot? You just start walking, following that. You know what they were doing? That's exactly what they were doing. They were just following the GPS system God had set up for them. Now that's pretty fascinating. Y'all just sit there, okay? That's pretty fascinating. They follow this star, and this star comes, verse 9, this star went, and it went before them. They had seen it in the east. It went on before them. It moves now until it came to, and it stood over the place where the child was. It just stops. 
It becomes a fixed point. And when they saw the star, listen to this, and it's resting now. They have found the child. They found the place of the child. Here's Matthew, and he just piles up one superlative on top of another. When they saw the star, they rejoiced. They didn't just rejoice. They rejoiced exceedingly. They didn't just rejoice exceedingly. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. There was this exaltation, this great time of just worship. They had come to the place where the king was, this child that had been born king of the Jews. Look at verse 11. And after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary and his mother, and they fell on the ground and worshiped him. Now notice that. Look at your text. They fell on the ground and worshiped him. They did not worship him and her. They worshiped him. They did not worship him and them. They worshiped him. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the Lord. He is the only one worthy of worship. So they come in. Now, don't look up from the text. Keep your eyes on it. Watch this. They come in, they fall on the ground, and they worship him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts. Now, that's where we're going to pick it up next week, next Sunday morning. But let me tell you, look, look at this, because this tells you something here that is going on in the hearts of these pagans. These are star, moon, sun-worshiping pagans who have come out of Persia, ancient Persia, and they've come now, and they're opening up treasures, and they're presenting treasures to him to the one who in the sixth chapter of Matthew and the 21st verse will say, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. They come to worship him. They don't come just to worship him. They come to give their heart to Jesus Christ. They are there in exaltation. But let me tell you, there are plenty of others that are there in tribulation. Look back to what's going on. You read in verse 2, where is he, they ask, who has been born king of the Jews? For he saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard of this, he was terasso in the Greek. It means to be stirred up, shaken up, agitated, disturbed, thrown into confusion. Uh, he was confused. He was upset. He was beside himself. And not only him, but the Bible says all of Jerusalem with him. The whole of this process, all of these there, all of these chief priests, all of these scribes, all of these Pharisees, all of them are in a stir now. And they're confused and they're upset because they are threatened, they are troubled that they will not have their position, that their position is going to be threatened, that their resources is going to be threatened, that their finances will be threatened, all of these things. And they just live in this constant agitation. Does that describe anything you know of today? You call it America? <laughs> are, are we, do we not live in some of the most disturbing times you've ever seen? everybody's agitated, everybody's upset, everybody's uh, racing off in this direction and that direction and can't really give you an explanation why. I read this week, I watched this week, all week long I've watched in, in um, the, the papers out of Europe, 
Putin has set up for three days in a row, has set up nuclear warheads that he claims are on missiles that can move 27 times faster than the speed of sound. You say, oh, I don't believe that. Well, just let him shoot one off and I guess we'll find out. In fact, I don't know if you saw the papers this morning, but early this morning, just looking to follow up on that, they claim that there is a, that there is a coup that is working inside the Kremlin and that it will not be long before Putin is gone. And my question is, before that happens, if they're putting that out in the, in the European press, uh, I'm certain that he knows about this. What's he going to do? Is he going to shoot one of those things before he goes away, before they catch him and do something with him? Now, I don't think he's going to destroy the world. I think the Lord's reserved that for himself. But I want to tell you something. He could wreak havoc. <laughs> Uh, in England and in Western Europe and in America just by unleashing a nuclear warhead. You've got all of that. What are you going to do with the stock market? Did you watch the stock market this past week? It's down. Listen, if you're looking at retirement, let me tell you, you better plan to keep working, buddy. You've got all this instability financially. You've got all this instability geopolitically. And then, Lord have mercy, what are we going to do with poor old Megan and Harry? <laughs> Crazy, confused, mixed up, befuddled, disturbed, stirred up, restless. Why? Do you ever wonder why our nation continues to be in such turmoil? No exaltation of the Savior. We get further and further away from it. And nobody seems to have a clue that maybe there's a reason why there's so much disturbance and confusion and turmoil in our world today because we keep rejecting anything that is biblical, unbiblical. Let's pull it out and let's exalt it and throw it in the face of God. And yet we are, folks, we're in a bad place. I hate to tell you that at Christmas, but the fact of the matter is this. If you'll exalt Jesus, he'll take care of you. He'll take care of you. They've come in exaltation. They're not disturbed. Those who worship God never, ever tremble in this world. Herod's afraid. He's trembling. The wise men are not. Let me show you one last thing. And the last thing is this. Look at this. Are we looking for the eternal? Are we searching for the eternal? Or are we just grasping for the temporal? Now, you come back to this and you see this. It's interesting. These three kings, as they're called in the song. We three kings of Orient are. Bearing gifts, we traverse afar, field and fountain, moor and mountain, following yonder star. They're not kings, and we don't know how many there are, but I can tell you this with certainty, there are two kings in this chapter right here. One is Herod. Herod is a king, but he's a king because Rome has propped him up. 
He claims to be king of the Jews, but the fact of the matter is, because his mother was a Nabataean, he has very little Jewish blood flowing in him, and he's there because Caesar has propped him up and made him a puppet government over Israel. And the truth of the matter is, right after this, Herod is going to die. Won't make it long. He won't make it long. He's going to die. I think I told you last week, if you want to read probably the best account that I've ever come across on Herod's death, get Bill O'Reilly's book on killing Jesus and read the first chapter. He will outline for you the death of Herod, and it's pretty horrible. There's another king here, though. And the interesting thing, the other king is a baby. Here's, here's the interesting thing in all of this. There is a baby born in a stable that destabilizes a king that sits on a throne. This baby here, born in this never has said a word. All he can do is coo and cry. Has never set foot anywhere, cannot walk a step. All he can do is kick those little chubby feet has never done a miracle as of yet. All he can do is raise up a little chubby hand and point a chubby finger. And yet he is king of everything. And he was born to die. And when he dies, he will rise again. Because the whole purpose of the birth of Christ was for him to go to a cross and to walk out of a tomb so that you and I could have eternal life. That's the Christmas story. What are you searching for? Let me, let me tell you something. Like Herod, if you're constantly looking to grasp the temporal, you, you, you grab all you can and you're going to die. But there is one who has died for us. Man born once will die twice. But man born twice will die only once. And Jesus Christ came to ensure that. What are you searching for? What are you looking for this Christmas? Are you looking for the eternal? Are you just looking for that thing that is temporal that will not last? They came looking for the Savior. I I read a book several years ago. Now, this is honestly the title of the book. Um, So you're not hearing me incorrectly. It's called A Field Guide to Getting Lost. A field guide to getting lost. It was written by the people out in the Rockies, out in the western part of the country, that um, go out and hunt for people who get lost. And so they decided, we're going to write a field guide on how you can get lost. In other words, they've given something to us that this will help you not to get lost. And they tell the story of a family that was out west. True story, gone to the Rockies uh, for vacation. Uh, They were out by one of the rivers out there, and the family was out playing. They had an 11-year-old son who was deaf, and his eyesight was going. He was losing his eyesight. And so they were out there, and they were playing, and of course, they included that little boy in their game. And the little boy somehow ran off in a direction and got separated from the family and was lost. Now, the parents are panicked. Uh, they call out everybody they can call out to let's get out there and look for him. And uh, thankfully, they had thought we could put a whistle around his neck, and he's to blow that whistle if he is lost so that we can hear it and we can go to him. 
And the little boy, when he comes back, when they find him, he tells them, I was blowing the whistle, blowing the whistle, blowing the whistle, but they could never hear it. The reason they couldn't hear it was because of the roar of the river that they were by. It covered up the sound of the whistle. It was getting late. It was getting very cold as it does out in the Rockies. That night was coming on. Parents were really panicked at this point. The little boy just plops down. He sits down in a, in a pile of leaves and, uh, and pine needles, and he goes to sleep for the night. Everybody's out searching for him. The next morning, the sun comes up. The little boy gets up and begins to blow the whistle again. And this time, somebody's close enough to him that they can hear the whistle. They go to him, and they find him. He's saved. Now, that field manual tells us this. That's generally what happens with children out in the Rocky Mountains when they get lost. They are found. But it's not so with adults. And they say the reason why the children are found is that children will admit when they are lost. An adult will not. An adult male almost never. Well, I know where I am. I can get us out of here. I know where we can go. I know, I know which direction to move in. And we don't. And the other thing is this. They say that, listen, these adults will not admit that they are lost and they continue to move off in a direction whereas children will stay and will wait for someone to come and rescue them. Adults will move off getting lost further and further and further into the woods. Now, let me just ask you something this quick. What are you looking for? Maybe some of you are searching for salvation. You're looking for it. But you're looking in all the wrong directions. You don't have to go in search of Jesus. He's come for you. He's come for you. He's here right now. He knows exactly where you are. He knows your position and where you are. And he's come to find you and to save you. Are you lost? Can you admit it? Or will you just get further and further away? Let's stand and pray about that. That's the question. What are you searching for? Are you searching to be saved? Are you searching for Christ? Christians, are you searching for an experience this Christmas with the Lord? Or are you searching for some other experience? If you're here this morning and down in your heart, you know, I'm lost. I'm not saved. I desperately need Jesus Christ. Then call on Him. The Word of God tells us to as many as believed on Him, to them gave He the power to become the sons and the daughters of God. That right in this moment, right where you're standing, you can bow your head and you can say, Lord Jesus, I give my life to You. I trust You. I believe in You. I believe that You are the Christ who died for me and that You were raised from the dead to give me eternal life. And I come in this moment and I give myself to you. 
Make that your prayer. And if that's your prayer, come and tell me. I'm going to be standing right here at the front waiting for you to come and to say, I've trusted Christ. I'm giving my life to Christ. I want that to be public. I don't want to be ashamed of the gospel. Others of you this morning, maybe you need to come and be a part of this fellowship. This fellowship that I'm telling you, God's moving in the midst of this place. Or maybe this morning you just need to come and say, Lord, I'm yours. I've been found. You found me years ago, but the truth of the matter is I'm searching for everything else but what I need to be looking for. Father, in these moments, I pray that our response would glorify you. For I pray it in Jesus' name. Would you come right now? Your head's bowed. You come as God speaks. Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.